Welcome to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. Here we explore the training and development of America's leaders in the application of air power and the profession of arms. The views expressed are those of the hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I am Colin Slade. And I'm Reed Gann, and we're your hosts for Commission Ed. This is going to be a fun one, Colin. I'm excited. Why is that, Reed? Well, so a couple episodes back, in the episode we did about the importance of recognizing how we sacrifice some of our own individual liberties in our profession as we protect the liberties of others, we talked about how small the Air Force was because you were transitioning to the reserves. You're going to have to go to space officer training. And I commented that, you know, you're probably going to run into some of your cadets out there because the Air Force is small. So when you mentioned that you're going to be doing an interview with Jenny Runke, I thought, hey, I actually know her. So when I was an instructor at OTS, she was in a different squadron there. So I was in the 24th training squadron. She was in detachment 12. And as part of my initial qualification training, I had to observe a flight commander welcome their students. So it's called flight commander welcome. You go in the flight room. The students are shaking. They're freaking out. And it's the first time they meet you in your flight room. And she was who I was selected to observe. And so, yeah, I I know Jenny Runke. So small world. And we've said this before in podcasts and we'll say it again. And she even mentions it in this episode. The Air Force is a terrifyingly small place. So don't be a jerk. (laughs) be kind we'll just throw that out there yeah and let's just say jenny runke is definitely one of those kind people huge heart great personality excellent officer doing some really great things for the air force both stateside and you'll hear in the interview is some deployment experience in there in fact one of the reasons i became aware of the opportunity to interview her is that she had been highlighted by the Air Force Academy for her recent deployment doing aircraft maintenance on the MQ-9, which is pretty awesome stuff. So I'm really excited to bring this interview to all of you, and we're going to turn it over right there to Captain Jenny Runke. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Yeah, this is really exciting. I literally know nothing about aircraft maintenance. So this is a great opportunity for you to talk to what you do within the aircraft maintenance career field to somebody who knows nothing because literally I know nothing. And uh, I'm excited to learn about it as well as uh, for our audience to gain that perspective on being part of the sortie generating mission instead of noners like me and Reed, you know? Um, Yeah. Initially, I think there's just a lot of misconceptions of what it is and how it works and how closely we work with ops. So definitely looking forward to breaking it all down. Yeah, it's going to be great. But before we get there, we need to introduce you, give you the opportunity to talk about uh, your background, where you're from, what got you interested in the Air Force, how you got a commission. So I'll turn it over to you. Take some time to introduce yourself to the audience and tell us who you are. 
All right. I am Jenny Runke, and I grew up in Florida. I'm kind of a military brat, not so much because my dad only had a couple moves, and I was really young and didn't remember much before he transitioned over to the Guard. But he graduated from the Air Force Academy. Um, I didn't even know the Air Force Academy was a college, to be honest. But yeah, I don't know what college my dad went to. So I was not involved at a young age. My brothers, I have two older brothers, and they got into the flying. So my brother ended up going to the academy prep school because he didn't get in his first time. And we went out there and visited him during parents weekend. At that point, I did not want to go to the Air Force Academy because I didn't even know what it was. So going and seeing him, seeing how it was, seeing like the uniform, the standardization, I'm just seeing like how in sync they were and like a direction and knowing that they're going to, you know, go serve our country. It kind of was like, oh my gosh, like I could do this. So I remember like sitting in the parade seats um, and seeing, looking over my parents and just seeing how proud they were of him from then on. I was like, I'm going to do this. So again, going back to Florida and then kind of being late in the game, meeting with my guidance counselor, just like starting to find the ALO, your liaison officer in the local area. So I kind of, I was late in the game. My SAT, ACT scores just were not up to par. The community involvement wasn't up to par. I was working a lot in high school and I ultimately did not get picked up my first year, but it wasn't an end all for me. So my dad, again, luckily was flying with a guy and his son had attended Northwestern Preparatory School. And it's a, it's a civilian prep school. It's not associated with uh, Falcon Foundation, which a majority of those people who get that scholarship go to Northwestern Preparatory School and they have the equivalent for Navy. So at Northwestern Prep School, it's all the sister services. So it's not just for Air Force. It's for those candidates interested in attending Naval Academy, Merchant Marine Academy, Coast Guard Academy, and Air Force Academy. So it's everyone. Yeah. So I didn't get that foundation, but there is still that option to pay out of pocket. And it's just for one semester. So you go there for one semester and then you attend a college or university for the second semester. And you need to show that you can hold the typical workload of an academy. So at least 15 to 18 credit hours. So you go there from June to November, I think right after Thanksgiving, before Christmas. And basically what you're doing is just all preparatory work. So they help you with a lot of memorization because you know that they do that a lot your first year at the service academies. Uh, they help you with SAT, ACT scores. So you, they literally drive you down to the mountain like every weekend, almost every weekend that you're there. So probably like 11 times that you're switching, alternating, taking this SAT, ACT score because that's ultimately a, one of the showstoppers for getting into an academy. Um, yeah, because I had a 3.7. Um, I was still involved with sports and activities. I had the vice presidential nomination my first time applying and I still didn't get it. This time around, I didn't have the House of Representative or Senate nomination. And then again, at the preparatory school, they helped you with your interview and they made sure that you read books because those are the type of questions that they would ask you. And then ultimately I got my House of Representative um, nomination and then so with the vice presidential. And the vice presidential, like if you look into it, if you haven't, it's mainly you're kind of grandfathered in. I don't want to say it's an automatic, but if you have a history of military in your family, you kind of get a one up in that nomination. 
So then I went to the University of Central Florida just because it was closer to home um, in Orlando. So I grew up in Tampa. So it was just two hours. And my brother was there. So it was easy for me coming in late, coming into that spring semester and just living with him and knocking out my five classes that I took. Just I needed to make sure I made all A's. needed to make sure that I could show that I could hold this workload. Um, I also had a job. So then I, you know, I submitted all my paperwork, did everything that I could. And then I got that acceptance letter. And a couple months later, I was off to the Air Force Academy. So at the Air Force Academy, um, my background there, I was systems engineering management. You know, I had hopes of being a weather officer, uh, doing a meteorology major, but boy, that like the physics and math involved in meteorology is mind blowing. So I give it a kudos to them. It is totally a lot to handle. So I ended up switching my major, uh, I would say about midway through sophomore year. And then also I cheered at the Air Force Academy. So having to juggle all that, uh, I didn't cheer my freshman year, but from sophomore to senior year, I had that opportunity to cheer for the football games, all home and away, and then for all the home basketball games. From graduating from the Air Force Academy and getting into aircraft maintenance, initially I did not have aircraft maintenance down. I was actually going to pilot training. And pilot training just did not work out for me. And I ended up getting reclassed to aircraft maintenance. So I had the opportunity during that period as well to kind of be casual and have the opportunity to shadow real contracting officers, acquisition officers just around the base because I wanted to get a feel for what else was out there. And especially having some type of management background, I thought it would be more fitting to do acquisitions or contracting. But I got into aircraft maintenance and I really excited to get into it and actually talk to other people that were um, maintenance officers because it was a lot different than the contracting and acquisitions. There was no paperwork. There was no end of year obligations because I was actually had to do that for contracting. And I was like, oh my gosh, this was an opportunity to actually lead Aaron and actually be on, directly involved with, you know, sortie generation, directly involved with the missions but understand like all the maintenance that goes into maintaining the aircraft. Yeah, that's so cool. Where else have you been stationed? I started off at Offit in Nebraska, and there we had the RC-135 variants, and then also the E-4B, which is the Secretary of Defense's airplane. So um, I worked about the first year and a half, two years on the RC-135 side, and I actually had the opportunity to go to deploy to Qatar with our unit. So we bring our own package and we have our RC-135s out there. Um, it's just ISR, Intelligence Surveillance Reconnaissance. And then my last year, I had the opportunity to go across the ramp to the E-4s and see that side of the house with all the presidential support missions that they do and how important that was in all the secret places that they got to fly to. So that was cool too. And that airframe is like an NC3. So big communication antenna stuff in there. Basically what it does. Yeah. You know, there's some really crazy stuff going on with the presidential and top five airlift. Awesome. So you went to Offit and then from there, did you go to Creech? No, from Offit, I had the special duty assignment at officer training school. 
so for that, that timing worked out really good for me to throw in the IBE. There are certain class dates, you know, to start your qualification teacher training. And I had a little bit of a lull period and I just pinned on captain and I was able to get like in one of the first SOS classes as soon as I got to Maxwell. So it was the November, December timeframe. I just got there in October. So I was able to knock that out. Like timing has always been on my side. Lucky you. I know. So even before that, right? Like when I say timing's been on my side, I was throwing in there that I had the five kids. I had the first two at Offit, but I never, you know, like I didn't miss out on the opportunity to deploy, right? So I never had that issue. Or again, like I didn't miss out on the opportunity to go to SOS because there's a lot, a lot of times you'll have to get a waiver if you are pregnant or um, in that process where you end up missing your window because you're, you know, you're growing your family. Uh, so for me, like I had that period, I was good to go. And then right after I finished, I ended up getting pregnant again. So again, timing has always worked out. And then I went through all the OTS training. Um, yeah, it was early in my pregnancy. And then I ended up pulling a flight. And I was only able to pull one flight before I gave birth to my twins. Oh my goodness. So, <laughs> yes. So the good thing there is before maternity leave was only six weeks and then they just changed it to 12 weeks because I was like, yes, because I have two babies, but you wouldn't only get six weeks with two babies. So luckily for me, it ended up changing right before I had the twins. So I had that 12 weeks to, you know, just get to know my babies and nourish them. But coming back and pulling my first class, you know, with 12 week newborn twins and like being so tired, like for maintenance, like the typical day, to be honest, is usually about 12 hours when you're that first lieutenant, second lieutenant, and you're learning, they want you to be out there on the flight line. And it's going to help you in the long run. Um, so then I get to OTS and the person who kind of like talked to me about it was like, oh, it's a kind of a break for my prep maintenance, but it wasn't. <laughs> so yeah, but they don't tell you about the 4 a.m. having to leave your house at 4 a.m. to wake them up at 4.45, but it was rewarding. So I didn't know much about it. And I had learned so much from being an instructor. So public speaking and having your own class of 16 was a challenge for me, but it helped me. Like it helped me overall in maintenance. It's known for daily briefs. So you start at the AMU level from there, and then you go up to the squadron level, and then you brief them the same aircraft st status. Then you go meet up with the group, and then you go meet up with the wing, and then you do it all over again. So it's constant aircraft status updates, and you're constantly briefing. So it's important, you know, different briefing styles versus teaching styles. With briefing, you know, you want to be more clear, concise, get to the point, because the wing commander doesn't have all the time to listen to you. So I really benefited from that, being able to lead my own flight, do my own discussions, guided discussions, bring in my own experiences, and then only pulled three flights. And then I moved over to curriculum and was able to do all the lesson plans and also have the opportunity to teach the auditorium lessons. So going from, you know, just teaching your flight to actually teaching the whole class was also another experience and another point in my career where I was able to strengthen overall public speaking. So that was, um, I was happy I had that opportunity to go to curriculum and see that side of the house and see how everything is AFI driven. And I think it just overall, like it, you 
don't think like these special duties, some people, you know, they have bad press or whatever, but you end up getting a special duty and it ultimately is going to help you out in the long run. And I think the Air Force sees that a lot more is why they emphasize the special duties instructor duty now, um, because they see, you know, like it pays dividends in the long run and shows that you have that, that diversity in your background. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, how long were you at OTS? Three years total before I moved over to Creech. Okay. And Creech is where you are now? And I'm at Creech right now, yes. Cool. Uh, working at MQ-9 mission, you mentioned you just got back from a deployment. Where, where did you go? Uh, an undisclosed location. Of course you did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Especially at MQ-9 mission, you know, that, that stuff stays pretty hush-hush. Yes. And they're all over the world and it's, they're amazing aircraft. It's a different perspective to having air crew in the cockpit versus in a separate location where they're operating the, the aircraft. And it's good to like the maintainers are different too. So you have the millennial maintainers that this is what they grew up in. They never worked on the old 50 year aircraft. Like they've been working on this brand new MQ-9 at their disposal. Uh, all the new technology. So that's what they know. So that I knew, I talked to a previous officer who was at Creech and she kind of gave me that background and I saw it with my own eyes. So it was was cool to see that, you know, a lot of younger airmen straight out of tech school come straight to Creech. Unfortunately for them, their AFSE is tied to the MQ-9. So really they can either come here or go to Cannon or try and cross train over to the aircraft at Beals. All the garden spots of the Air Force. Yes, yes. Because it's not an all-weather aircraft, right? So it cannot fly in the rain. It can barely fly in wind. So it has to be in a deserty location. Which means that you have to be in a deserty location. Yes, so that means where we go are generally in deserty locations if you want the aircraft to perform, you know, at its max. And I didn't even know what Creech was too. So I... You have the option of a dream sheet before you get an assignment. And for 21 Alphas, you can go anywhere with an airplane. So it's pretty easy. There's a lot more places that we can go to overseas, a lot of other places. But for me, I just wanted, I put Las Vegas down thinking I would get Nellis, not thinking about Creech, but I looked into it and then I, you know, got here and I'm actually happier at Creech. It's more of like a hometown, small base vibe you know everyone on base you can walk anywhere you can walk to the wing building and just you know everyone versus Nellis they're so busy you know joint operations different services out there having to fight traffic so Indian Springs is literally 30 miles straight shot to nowhere but it's relaxing and I get to listen to podcasts and do a lot of audibles and take advantage of that time yeah very cool so how long you been at Creech I've been at Creech for a year and a half. Okay. So looking at getting a new assignment on the next cycle. So yes, typically for 21 alphas, usually you'll stay at your first duty assignment for about four years. And then your second one will be like exactly at the three-year mark. And then it'll depend on the third one, just where you're at. If you end up doing a special duty, special duty assignments are usually controlled three years. And like where I'm at right now. So I met the major board last year, so I'm major select, so I will pin on in January. And then for aircraft maintenance officers, similar to security force officers, you are a squadron commander very young. 
So basically at a young FGO. So I will meet my board next spring after I pen on major and then uh, be on command board list. And then the following year is when I would move. So regardless if I don't get picked up for command or I would like to do um, developmental education and go do either AACSB, go back to Maxwell or go be air officer commander at the Air Force Academy. Those are kind of my top two right now. So hopefully that would be my first look opportunity to get picked up for that. Or I would go be a squadron commander anywhere with an airplane. That is so cool. So fascinating to see your career, your, your background. One thing that we like to highlight on this podcast is that there's no such thing as a typical career path. And so much of what you do as an officer is dependent on how you define success for yourself. And yes, there is such a thing as the needs of the Air Force and you will go where the Air Force needs you, but you do get to have some say in it. You do get to work with career field managers and within the system as it exists to develop your capabilities and and continue to grow uh, as an officer and and be more effective. And we can see that in your career, you know, starting even all the way back to before you, you got to the Air Force Academy, you had to put in the the time and the effort uh, to get selected for it. Uh, it wasn't just handed to you. You went out and got that. You you defined that success for yourself. And then UPT didn't work out for you, but you know through job shadowing and seeing other opportunities, you highlighted that you fell in love with the maintenance career field. And you're like, that's the one that I want to go do and and be successful in. And so over the course of your career, you have taken control of it and demonstrated that you are going to follow a path that makes sense for you as an officer in in your development, as well as you highlighted that the timing has worked out really nicely for you and the the growth of your family. So that's been a big part of it too, and and very cool to watch. Yes, absolutely. I think that's really important to know that you do have people watching over you. So your assignment team right? They're very transparent with you. They give you opportunities, options, and they hear you out. So if you ever have anything going on in your life, they have that, you know, open line that you can directly call them. And I think that's really important that there is no one point career path. And you'll see a lot of peers like I need to do this, 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 like I need to hit these things in order to be successful in my career. And there, there is, that's not true. Like they're, everyone is successful and how they approach their job at that time and how their performance is in that job. And you just need to trust that. A lot of people don't trust the system, but if you trust it, you have good leadership, mentorship, have that line of communication, you'll never really be worried about what's next for you. I think it is important to know that you do have some control of your life and your career and to always, you know, just bloom where you're planning, do the best that you can do in those certain jobs and just be present do the best performance wise. You don't have to worry about what your peers are doing as long as you know what you're doing is the best that you can do in that seat at that time. Um, And then from then on, everything will take care of itself. Awesome. So cool. There is so much from your background that we could get into that is just really fascinating. I mean, going to prep school at Northwestern, being part of the cheer team at USAFA, the transition from UPT into maintenance, your deployments, so much. But 
I want to spend the bulk of our time here discussing the aircraft maintenance career field. So first of all, you, you've mentioned it a couple of times, your AFSC is 21 Alpha. Does that have any sort of shred outs? What is your actual AFSC all combined? So I'm a 21 Alpha 3. So you start off as a 21 Alpha 1. And when you finish your upgrade training that two year, then you will upgrade to a 21 Alpha 3. And from your 21 Alpha 3, that's just two years um, after you finish your tech school is that date timeframe and you have all your training finished and you upgrade to that. And then you work through your senior certification, which that involves extra classes that you can take. So DAU, Defense Acquisition University, offers a lot of the classes that you can go and they're virtual. So you can just go online, do distance learning, anything involved with acquisition, supply chain, lean programs, like any of those courses, they'll tell you what is open, available, and you could take that at your own time. And then there's also different classes that we could take as maintenance officers. So there is the safety investigation, aircraft maintenance incident course that you could take located in Kirtland. That's optional. There is a JMIC course, which is a jet engine course uh, that your senior NCOs, jet engine troops end up going to. And then other ones out there too, there's a whole list, but I ended up doing three BAU courses and then I did QUIPIC, which is contingency war planning course. And that is held at Maxwell. So I got to do that before I PCS to preach um, and do it in-house so that I checked that box there. And then along the way, you have those job positions. So typically, as a brand new second lieutenant, they'll put you in the back shops. So another confusing breakdown is there's aircraft maintenance squadron and then there's maintenance squadron. So maintenance squadron is all the heavy maintenance that's going to take typically longer than 12 hours to complete. So the aircraft go through different phases, different scheduled inspections. Sometimes the, it'll take about 21 days to do these inspections. So they're based on either calendar day or hourly inspections, just depends on the airframe or the base, different from fighters to heavies. And you would work those back shots as a second lieutenant because you have the opportunity to see more, be able to move around to those other back shops. So like sheet metal fabrication, like all the external repairs that we can do. There's a non-destruction um, inspection and they have all these crazy technology inspection items that they could do like sheerography where they could like laser things and just check for cracks or any anomalies on structure of the aircraft and then there's even wheel and tire shop with just the wheels on the aircraft landing gear tons of different back shops that you can jump to and then from there when we feel like you have adequate enough knowledge then we'll move you over to the aircraft maintenance side so the aircraft maintenance squadron is solely sortie generation and we deal with all the red ball maintenance. So red ball maintenance is anything that we could get done within a two hour time frame on the flight line. So if somebody's about to launch an aircraft and the operator gets like a warning light or caution light, we'll, they'll call our maintainers, they'll come run out there and we'll troubleshoot the problem as they're still trying you know, to take off their line. So that's the red ball maintenance that the aircraft maintenance side deals with. And from there, there's a couple other 
flights as well on the aircraft maintenance side that you're able to start to be in charge of the enlisted personnel under you and start to learn that, right? So they always say to attach yourself to a strong senior NCO because they know more than you and they're going to help you. So for me, I was able to go to aircraft support flight and I had a strong senior master sergeant and we were in charge of COSO, which was supply. And we are in charge of the CTK, uh, where everyone checks out all the tools. And then we are also in charge of the UDMs for the deployment managers. And then that was another, all the different career fields and how important it is to work together. Like aircraft maintenance works with logistics. We're really heavy with logistics. Uh, we're really heavy with the supply troops. So they used to be shredded out um, under aircraft maintenance, but now LRS. The logistics squadron kind of took them back under their wing, but they do supply maintenance um, and ordering, you know, specific aircraft parts. So we work a lot with 21Rs for sure. They are like our main people that we work with, especially when you have a high ops tempo and you're doing those deployments. And we work with vehicle maintenance, POL, like all those LRS, AFSCs we work very closely with. So. That would be like your typical career path, starting in the back shops, the maintenance squadron, then moving over to the aircraft maintenance squadron where you're doing actually sortie generation, more flight line operations. And then you start getting involved with the scheduling process and just long range maintenance scheduling and the aircraft status. That's very important. Yeah. There's a lot there. <laughs> <laughs> I know, sorry. There's a lot. <laughs> cool. But I want to go back to a kind of foundational for the career field itself. Why does the 21 Alpha aircraft maintenance officer exist to begin with? So a main thing to understand for the aircraft. Maintenance owns the aircraft. Operators, operations, squadron groups, they do not own the aircraft. They operate it, but ultimately it's on our books. We maintain it. We make sure that the aircraft is FMC. It's fully mission capable. It's ready to go. And then we hand it off to the operator at that time, and then they have control of the aircraft. So we own the aircraft. We deal with all the depot maintenance, any modifications. There's just a lot into maintenance of an aircraft where you need to have an AFSC and need to have all these different AFSCs under this huge umbrella uh, because it's so specific of what different career fields on the enlisted side that need the training for specific jobs in order to you know have a successful mission when it comes down to flying aircraft. It's important to have an aircraft officer there because they need to be able to speak that side um, when you are communicating to the wing, communicating to operators and knowing the, op the importance of maintenance, knowing like how long does it take for me to generate a spare aircraft? Like we don't have a bunch of aircraft we could just give you. Like there's different ways of doing things. We have AFI driven things. So if I have a scheduled inspection coming up and I know I only have 10 hours on this aircraft, you have to constantly manage your aircraft where you're not going to put yourself in a negative situation where you end up having all broken aircraft and then nothing to deliver to your customer, which our customer is really, you know, the operator 
at this point is delivering a fully mission capable plane for them to fly, for them to fly their mission. So I would say that like knowing all those nuances to an aircraft is important and important to have that career field there. So even on the commercial civilian side, they have, you know, their own maintenance side of the house that have that leadership there. Um, and my husband's a pilot too. So, uh, we, yeah, so right. Uh, we kind of have like, and that's me too, like me educating him for him to understand like, Hey, your crew chiefs and your guys on the ground, they don't belong to you. You know, there's an actual maintenance officer that they fall under. So just education and understanding. I mean, they probably don't even know what maintenance officers do. So a lot of it is managing the aircraft, making sure you're delivering safe aircraft. You're just making sure that you're on track, whatever your long range schedule. We look at long range, like one month out, three months out, 12 months out, how we are going to look. We do a health of the fleet where we break it down in metrics of what our rates are, what our trends are. We'll look into if we have any kind of deviations as far as late takeoffs, Code three breaks, breaks that are with more than 12 hours, um, code three breaks that make the aircraft not mission capable. Like we look at all these things just to overall like help the community, help everyone that we're working with and just make sure that we're mitigating any errors or any, you know, deficiencies that can happen. You know, it's about safety, like there's an actual risk um, to lives and especially having the people in the airplane. And then on the MQ-9 side, I would say that they're more able to take a risk because there's no air crew in the airplane. But at the same time, they're, you know, it's Air Force dollars. It costs a lot of money. Yeah. So if I were to try and summarize, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the maintenance officer exists in order to provide safe and fully mission capable aircraft to the operator and protecting that asset on behalf of the air force Is that correct yes i would say that was the easiest way to say it yes um well yeah because even the back shop you're still everything's going towards the aircraft but yes it's an air force asset that we're protecting and preserving and making sure that it's meeting its capabilities because one, you have a responsibility to the operator. You want to make sure that they're going to be safe. They're going to be able to, to fly their mission and return again, right? But also the responsibility to the, the operator is that the aircraft is going to be able to perform and conduct the mission that they've been sent out there to do. And so there are those two pieces of it. You must provide the safety, but you must also provide an aircraft that is going to be capable of delivering the effects that the Air Force needs. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so then your responsibility specifically as the officer, I mean, you're not out there turning wrenches. I mean, you, you mentioned that you can go out there and get as dirty as you want. You can be, uh, and that's highly encouraged, right? That you're out there on the flight line working with the crew chiefs and also in the back shops, uh, learning each of these different career fields and what they're involved in, but that's not your primary responsibility. So then, what is your primary responsibility towards the maintenance and that mission of providing safe and fully mission capable aircraft? So that one would be a harder to answer because it's going to depend on one of those positions that you hold. So 
as an aircraft support flight officer, my sole responsibilities was, you know, in charge of the UDMs, in charge of supply, in charge of our CTKs. So we would tie it to the overall mission, but specifically my job responsibility was just overseeing what they, those specific AFSCs were doing and were doing it appropriately towards the AFI. As you get more senior and going to change with every job position, there's not going to be one overall kind of responsibility as the maintenance officer. It's, it's going to change. Um, and then you have like additional TDYs or exercises, red flags, and it's just going to keep changing, which is good because it keeps you growing. It keeps you learning um, new experiences and building you overall. Yeah, that's really cool. So you, you mentioned earlier that you work really closely with the logistics uh, readiness officer, the 21R. What is that relationship like? I mean, how often are you interfacing with them? What is that relationship like? Okay, so we typically meet with the 21Rs daily at meetings. So we could talk to them at the wing stand-up meeting where we're, we're briefing the aircraft status. And they talk to us closely with supply parts. So their main job is to tell us where our parts are. And we'll have different little things like due in for maintenance or PQDR, which is big, which is product quality deficiencies. So if we do get a part out of supply and it ends up being a bad part supply, then we'll generate a report so they know. So it doesn't just get thrown back into the supply system. So that would be like the big piece as part of supply. And then they deal with when it comes to exercises and deployments, we're close with them. So specifically at Creech, we do not fly the aircraft out to locations due to airspace guidance. So you have to pack up the aircraft. So we'll pack up the aircraft, um, palletize it, but we have logistics folks that help us set up how it's going to go into the aircraft. So generally for the MQ-9, we either use a C-17 or C-130, take those planes downrange or wherever they're going back to get their modifications. And then also back to the deployments, we'll have you, you work closely with the installation deployment officer so the mq9 is very mobile so we'll be shutting down one site opening up another site but and getting like all that logistic help and efforts so they play a huge part there as well but we have overall we have a really good relationship with them they understand how important it is and how crucial you know certain planning is certain scheduling is so they, they do a great job having us out there yeah. Okay. What other AFSCs, especially officers, are you working closely with? I'm assuming pilots or what? what is that relationship like? So for the pilots, the main thing there is with each flying squadron, you know, normally they have requirements that they need to meet. So either it's a training syllabus driven requirements where they need X amount of sorties, X amount of hours. So they tell us what the requirements are and we'll tell them if we could deliver. And We'll look back at it like, oh, I need four lines this day. And then we'll look at our tails, see what's available, what's not go undergoing major maintenance or even, you know, daily maintenance things that happen where they are unpredicted and we aren't able to project that availability in the future. So we work with them closely there with scheduling to start with. And then 
on a daily basis, we were talking to them to get that overall debrief of how the flight went or what happened and it didn't go off. So we look for mission effectiveness. Why was it mission effective? Why wasn't it? And then uh, the big part of it is debrief. So we have good debriefs. So if there is a problem, we have all the information that we need to, to start troubleshooting because our guys have certain instructions that they're able to go down the list and kind of pinpoint what that root cause was and what a good fix would be. Okay. You mentioned earlier that there's lots of opportunity for you to take classes through DAU, the Defense Acquisition University. That makes me wonder, is there a relationship with the acquisition side of the Air Force? Do you interface on a regular basis with the 62, 63, or 64 series of officers? We do sometimes. So I've only worked with them closely when I was deployed to IUD. So sometimes there is something wrong with the aircraft and we don't have everything laid out for us. So we need to submit a request up to the engineers to help us troubleshoot to help the fix. So we would work closely with the engineer and that part um, on deployments. And then also um, on the E4 side, they're doing a lot of upgrades. And I had a friend from the academy who was at Tinker who came down TDY for six months to work with the contractors and the engineers. She was the acquisition from a program management side to make sure that the contractors were on track with the the modifications. Okay. Interesting. So over the course of your career, being at Offit and working with the RC-135 and the ISR mission there, as well as the special air missions, E-4B, and then shifting over to the MQ-9 at Creech, as well as the the different deployments that you've been involved with, you've had some really fantastic experience. And I was wondering if you could take a minute to talk about some of the the highlights over the course of your career, as well as some like the lowlights, because those can be uh, instructive as well. Highlights of my career, I would say, are the deployments and exercises. So generally, when you are at a home station, you're flying local training sorties, because we're ultimately getting the operators ready to go deploy. So it's important to get those currencies for them. And then when we go deploy, you know, it's game on. So having all the tools that you have, all the knowledge that you gather, all the training that you get, they send you out and you're ultimately the officer in charge. So you're going to be in charge of all your maintainers. You're going to be in charge of your assets while you're at that location. And then overall, the communication with the operators to know, hey, what is, what do we need to do? What's the schedule? Uh, And knowing that everyone has the right direction and knows like these are real life things that are going on in the world. And it's important for us to do specifically for ISR, for the data collection. It's real. So knowing that, and then that's when you break it down to that maintainer on the ground who's turning that wrench or filling up that tire is able to, you know, help that pilot deliver a safe aircraft and go out there, get the mission done, and then kind of get that intel report afterwards. And you're like, wow, like we did that. So that was always rewarding. Definitely one of the highlights of my career. That's so when I do look at what my next job or next location or 
wherever I want to go, I usually look at the mission. I would look at what they're doing. Cause that, for me, like job satisfaction is knowing that I am contributing to the, an overall mission, but also being an OTS instructor was a highlight of my career. Like now running into those cadets and, you know, operational air force. So it's always fun seeing them come out, see how they are, if they like, you know, took that advice and where they're at in their career and how they are. So having that important role in their early, early officer lives and then seeing them out in the operational air force is really rewarding as well. Um, I would say downfalls. There haven't been too many. I would say just trying to find an overall work-life balance. So like when I'm at work, I make sure my time is spent at work. But when I go home and, and you know, it's a reasonable time. I'm not staying extra late, putting in extra hours because that work's still going to be there for you the following day. Um, I make sure to take that time and spend it, you know, with my family. Uh, they always, you know, that you always hear those things like the Air Force is only for so long, but your family's forever. So for me, I think it's just trying to balance your time correctly. But when you are at work, you're at work and you're focused. But when you're at, at home, then, you know, you're at home, like take off, you switch your hats and you spend that time and you be present and aware and just make the most of it. But the downfall, I mean, overall, you're going to have the deployments. They're going to be rewarding. That may be thrown at you at, you not think it's the right time, but it works out. So for me, even to back to discussion on my deployment, I found out about six weeks before I was going. So um, aircraft maintenance. It's generally a high ops tempo, high deployments. Like, so I knew it was coming. I had that break at OTS where I did not deploy for three years. So I knew it was coming. But yeah, the six weeks, I had to manage a lot of things. So having the five kids, having the husband who's a pilot, who's gone on overnights, um, that took a lot of discussion and compromise and family effort and support. And then also he was, supposed to go on a deployment right after me. So just kind of having that projected out, knowing like what life is going to look like in the next year and how we're going to make the best of it. So, you know, aside from the Air Force challenges that you have, you're still going to have your life challenges um, and being able to balance those the best that you can be without hurting one or the other. Yeah, I love what you're saying about when you are at work, be at work, be 100% devoted to your responsibilities as an officer. But when you return home, then your focus must shift. When at home, be at home. Have that devotion to your family and your kids. I have to say, though, that I personally think that work-life balance is a farce, that it doesn't truly exist. And I really like my co-host, Reed. He often talks about viewing life and work as different sorts of like accounts that you make deposits in. At one point, you, you're going to have to make more deposits in the family account so that later on you may need to withdraw from that, especially when the Air Force calls you on a short notice deployment, you know, but, but you've made enough deposits into that account with, with the family so that they understand and, and are able to be resilient in your absence. And I also like what you're saying about 
you are going to have life challenges. Like that's just a norm, you know, for people both in and out of the Air Force. But you as an officer have the added quote unquote benefit of the Air Force challenges, the challenges that come with your responsibilities as an officer in the Air Force. So you get to learn how to deal with both at the same time, especially with you being joint spouse, married to another Air Force officer and all of the fun that comes with that. Yeah, it's challenges. And a, a lot of it is teamwork. A lot of it is knowing what each other's goals are. Sometimes, you know, one of us is going to take the back burner in our career and that's okay. Sometimes, you know, it's going to ebb and flow. So just being able to be flexible with each other, support each other and communicate with each other is kind of how we handle that situation. He is in the guard. So, oh, that does help. (laughs) So it helps, but also as a traditional guardsman, it's different as an operator because you're still doing more than the two days a month. So yeah, like he could probably give you like his whole experience on him. And he's an OTS graduate as well and went to a civilian university. So again, like completely different path between him and I and how we even got into the Air Force and different stories. So it's always awesome, like meeting people, talking to other people, hearing how they got started because we're all so different and we're all so diverse, but we do have a big commonality of, you know, why we serve and why we do what we do. So that again is always kind of those fun things that you wouldn't just get being on the civilian side. Like we have, you know, your air force family. Yeah, for sure. Well, very cool. Can we shift gears for just a couple of minutes? I'm interested to know about your professional development outside of what you do specific to the maintenance career field. I mean, you talked about uh, all those uh, classes that you can take, uh, certifications you can get, those kinds of things. But what are you doing outside of the Air Force to continue to develop yourself as an officer, as an individual, as a woman, as a mother? How are you continually improving yourself? I would say I read a lot of books. I do do all the leadership perspectives just because it's, it's interesting to me and it is interesting that I want to use it for the Air Force as well. But I will look at is people that I compare and relate to, right? Like that's who you're going to connect with. So I'll look for those types of authors or people and either just plug in an Audible or podcast and hear their perspective, those challenges, what they did to um, overcome those challenges. And that goes from like women that are in corporate, women that are just, you know, stay-at-home moms that have started um, like entrepreneurship, things like that. So that stuff motivates me and inspires me to just knowing that I have a lot of potential and that I'm, you know, like I could continue to grow and challenge myself. But I think the reason and why I do that is because I have all these kids. My first four are boys and then I got the girl. Um, Not because we're going for the girl, but I got the girl and like my perspective has completely changed, like even listening to experiences of, you know, other women and just like knowing that I'm going to raise this little girl in this world that we live in. And just to know that you are that direct sole example for these kids and you're raising these kids. I think that motivates me. It would be different if I did not have kids and I don't know if I would have that motivation to 
make myself a better leader for them. But that motivates me. I do. I read a lot. I do these leadership books. I'll take recommendations from other people that tell me about specific books that they had read. Uh, the standard, you know, Simon Sinek, start with why, like, and use and doing that stuff. Like, even though you hear it, actually trying to practice that and see what the results are for you. Everyone has different results, but that's kind of the continual leadership experiences that I have. I do constantly try and get involved with a community where I want to lead events, like not just be part of events, but I'm constantly trying to get involved um, and just seeing that side of the house with talking to people who aren't in the Air Force and what they do and you you learn from it. Okay. Uh, what sort of, you know, community events or you know, outside organizations do you uh, get involved with and in taking a, a leadership role in? So currently I'm trying to get into a couple of nonprofits, but right now, like I do client veterans fund, I'll do a couple events with them just to sh- spread awareness of what these nonprofits do in specific Las Vegas area. I've talked to Olive Crest that does fostering for children and at-risk families. So just getting involved and knowing what they do as an organization for the community. If they're doing like a food drive, then I'll go there and try and get involved. And then now, like, see, I've done all that stuff like on the outside, like the volunteerism. Now I'm trying to get more involved in the board work. So I haven't, I'm about to become one of these, a board member for one of the nonprofits, but that's kind of feel like this is what I should be doing. Like this is my service, like besides, you know, serving our country, but I feel like locally it's important as well. I get, you know, a satisfaction from that. But knowing and being able to understand what board members do for these specific nonprofits where the money goes, like all that I want to learn and know about. And then, yeah, for specific causes that you're interested in. So I'm interested in like, you know, American Cancer Society. Where does that money and that funding go? Um, What are they doing? Again, back to what relates to me and in my life. So those are the community involvement things that I'm currently doing. Um, I was the CGOC president at Creech and we try to do, you know, community outreach as part of that initiative as well. I love it. I think it's really cool that, I mean, you're busy enough as a maintenance officer, you're busy enough as a mother of five kids (laughs) and here you still find value. You have prioritized the time and the effort to continue to expand your reach and your involvement, your influence to these other organizations, continually trying to bring value and experience to these other places to improve the the community. I think that's awesome. And speaks volumes to not only you as an individual, but officers as a whole and what we can offer to these other organizations outside the Air Force. I think it's fantastic. Thank you. All right. So I have two more questions for you. The first question is, you know, we mentioned it earlier, if somebody wants to pick your brain about all these things that you have been a part of, you know, from going to a Northwestern prep school to being a cadet at the academy, 
the transition from UPT to aircraft maintenance, all of your deployments, the different experiences that you've had at, at your different locations. If somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the, what's the best way to do that? I would say through email. Usually pretty prompt and I, I'll respond back. But yeah, I'm definitely open, open book. Um, I'll tell you candidly from my point of view, I'm just what I've experienced, but I'm definitely open to that communication for anyone who has any future questions. Okay, cool. And are you active on social media anywhere? Can uh, people follow along with what you're involved with and reach out to you there as well? Yes. So my current public Instagram, because that's a good thing now, is Mrs. MRS dot Sky Canyon, S-K-Y-E-C-A-N-Y-O-N. So that's just the handle, Mrs.SkyCanyon. That's kind of following all the different parts that, of my life that I'm doing. So I'll share, you know, family things on there and some work stuff. And then mainly my local um, community involvement right now. Okay. I have to ask, what is the Sky Canyon? Because that's not your first name nor your last name. So where does that come from? It is because that is my current pageant title. Oh, um, okay. Because I am, yes, so, because I am competing in the Mrs. Nevada pageant. So I am the current Mrs. Sky Canyon for just, it's the area where we live in Las Vegas. And wish me luck at Mrs. Nevada. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So you're competing in a pageant. When is that? And if people want to follow along there, you know, and give you support, where do we go? Where do we see it? So just got pushed back to August 8th and 9th at the South Point Hotel and Casino. So if you are in the Las Vegas area, they haven't specified any tickets, releases or anything with COVID-19 going on. But uh, I will I will share a link on that Instagram. There's usually a live uh, stream, the link if you do want to follow along. But yeah, it's just another one of my goals that I set for myself that I wanted to compete in. And again, using that title to help overall with community efforts and changes, something that you can do and help you make those initiatives and those changes. That is fantastic. Are they going to have some sort of like, you know, audience vote? Can can we like get the link and have our audience all, all vote for you to advance to the next level? Is that a thing? There is usually a people's choice vote, but it has not gone live yet since it's been pushed back um, a couple of times. But I will share it with you and you can share it um, when it does go live. Yeah, please do. Because we not only want to support you uh, in your efforts as an Air Force officer, but you know all of the other fantastic things that you're involved with outside the Air Force. So keep us updated and we'll try to get the audience to throw their support behind you. Absolutely. That'd be great. Thank you. Very cool. All right. Last question for you. What does it mean to be an officer? What it means to be an officer is to be able to make decisions and stand by your decisions and take ownership over them. Maybe you don't make the best decision at that time or for that certain thing that happened but what did you grow from it and what are you going to do about it I think being an officer is holding yourself accountable to the standards that are set upon us to you know practice what you preach 
if you're going to do one thing or the other, or you're going to tell your people to do that, then you need to be able to stick by it and set that example and do the same thing. Being an officer means just even breaking down to the oath. What does the oath mean to you? How do you connect with it? Just knowing what your mission is, what your vision is for yourself, and then being able to share that with your people and leading people, right? A big part of officership is to be able to lead people. But first, you need to figure out what your leadership style is and stick with it. And just overall, just being the best that you can be. Like, it sounds corny, but you need to be able to be confident in who you are and continue to grow yourself. I love it. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your experience with us. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you so much. I look forward to meeting people in the future as well as we cross paths. Hey, Colin, thanks so much for working out that interview. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Jenny is very well-spoken. She's got some fantastic experience. Glad we had the opportunity to talk and share a very different perspective on Air Force officership than either you or I are familiar with. Yeah, I certainly learned a lot during this episode. And I know we're going to talk about it, but there's a whole lot more going on there than I understood. Yo, ab- absolutely. I mean, I come at this whole officer thing from the support side of things. You come at it from the operations and intel side of things. Neither of us have really any clue on what's going on on the maintenance side of the Air Force. For example, like I had no idea that there was a difference between maintenance and aircraft maintenance. Yeah, that kind of blew my mind. I just figured that they were all the same thing, but that apparently that's really not the case. And it's, it's kind of a big deal with regards to the development of a maintenance officer. Yeah. When it comes to, you know, the ops perspective, and she referenced this a few times, what do I care about? I care about status of aircraft and supplies. Do I have green aircraft that are fully mission capable FMC so I can go do what I need to do? And when it's broken, when is it getting fixed? Like, that's what I know. I remember being deployed and we would get regular updates on the status of weapons supplies, you know, how many weapons we had to deploy. And that would go into our timing. And then also availability of aircraft that would affect our timing. But by and large, it was, when is my jet ready? That's all I really thought about. So to hear their perspective was really, really enlightening and something I think I probably should know more about. Right. And on that point, I think all officers should know more about that. And that's where I wanted to take this discussion is the importance of being aware of what other parts of the Air Force are doing, not to say that you have to be an expert on it. Certainly that's not the case, but it is important for your development as an officer and your ability to be that much more effective and take your officership to that next level to go outside of your silo, your career field and talk with officers who see the Air Force from a very different perspective. That's the value of this podcast. That's the value of participating in CGOC or the Company Grade Officers Council. You need to put yourself out there, go ask the hard questions of people who don't 
look and think like you do. Yeah, totally agree. I That's one thing I enjoyed about being an instructor at OTS was the opportunity to interact with officers from different career fields. I shared a wall with a security forces officer who was next to a PA officer who was right next to a maintainer. We had loggies, CE, contracting. We, we had everybody really there. I had a lot of exposure to ops because that was the world I came from. So pilots, CISOs, WIZOs, you know, those folks, I, I kind of got their world. But yeah, really learned a lot and definitely, like you said, confirmed the importance of branching out because those people and their work, they impact your work and your work impacts them. And, and for us to really be effective leaders, we need to have at least a tacit understanding of what these folks are doing so we can enable them so they can enable us. That's how this is all going to work. Yeah. We really don't want to find ourselves in a position where we are blaming other people for the issues that we are dealing with without understanding the variables at play. Totally agree. Yeah. hundred percent. And so for that reason, say it again here, get outside yourself Go talk to some other officers, go talk to people in other career fields and other areas of the Air Force so that you can start to gain that understanding and appreciation for what they're doing. So that was the main thing that I wanted to highlight out of this episode, Reed. What did you take away from it? The thing that I wanted to talk about after listening to Captain Runke's experience was she mentioned how timing had always been on her side and she talked a lot about which is not the norm by the way <laughs> yeah yeah well timing either will or won't be it's one of those things we can't affect really you know it's one of those non-controllables right that we have to be aware of and we have to think about what can't control a whole lot but what she was specifically talking about and her career at multifaceted like many of us we're, we're all different people but she is particularly bringing this, her character as a mother. And she has five children. And as a parent of three, I mean, that is like crazy train turned up to 11. I respect and admire people who do that. I, I don't know, five just seems like a, a lot. And she's handling it with a plum. She's competing in Mrs. Nevada. She, I, I mean, clearly she's Wonder Woman over there. But the thing that really struck me is her experience having children and getting the time off and having that fit and work with her career. Because that experience can be very different depending on the culture in your unit where this kind of stuff is happening. And that's what I want to talk about is how as leaders, we are responsible for creating the culture in our units. and that culture will drive behavior for good and for ill. I had a very different experience with respect to timing and children and caregiver leave than you did, than she did. And those impacts can be huge. As I listened to her experience and I thought about my own, it really made me want to be very aware of how my behavior creates a culture and then that culture drives the organization and people's lives. What were you thinking about? I mean, you just had a child relatively recently, so you've kind of been through this more recently than I have. Yeah, so my experience was 
that my commander and my colleagues, people I was working with, they all recognized and were very supportive of the fact that my wife was going to have a baby and that I was going to use my caregiver's leave. And as an aside, there have been some pretty significant changes to the leave program relative to the qualifying birth or adoption that I think we should highlight really quickly. It used to be that a mother who gave birth would get 12 weeks of convalescent leave and, and a father would get their 10 days, but that has very recently changed. Reed, would you mind taking us through those changes? Yeah. So one of the more important things we should bring out with this is that it, this is now applicable to same-sex couples. The original policy was women who gave birth and their husbands, basically, is who it really applied to. The new policy applies to more of our brothers and sisters in arms. And so there are three categories of non-chargeable leave following a qualifying birth event or an adoption. So maternity convalescent leave. So for mothers who give birth, they're going to get some convalescent leave. And then primary caregiver and second caregiver leave. Convalescent leave is... 42 days or six weeks. Primary caregiver leave is six weeks. And secondary caregiver leave is three weeks or 21 days. So in the most classical example of where this leave is normally applied, you have a mother and a father. The mother gives birth. She gets 12 weeks of leave. The husband would get uh, 21 days where previously it was only 10. And that's probably the biggest change to the policy. The, the mother in the situation is still getting the 12 weeks that they've gotten in the past. And the, the maternity slash convalescent leave must be taken at the time of the, the birth of the child. But the caregiver's leave, whether it's primary or secondary, can be taken any time within a calendar year of that event. It's nice that it, that it offers that flexibility, both in uh, who is the primary and the secondary caregiver, plus when you can use that leave. Yeah, in addition to branching it out to to more people to qualify for them in supporting their children and their growing families. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that is available to all airmen and cannot be denied by a commander. And so that then gets back to what you kind of what you were asking on this read is the timing and the culture that surrounds the use of these types of programs, these benefits. For, for my experience was everybody knew that I was going to take my caregiver's leave and that I was also going to take some additional leave on top of that. I was going to be gone from the unit for basically uh, a month and a half, two months. And everybody was okay with that. And, le and let's just throw this out there. It's not like this is a surprise. Last time I checked, normal gestation was nine months. That's a pretty significant period of time. So these are not going to be surprise events. Now, some airmen PCSs into your unit, they've been there two weeks, and they look you in the face and say, hey, sir or ma'am, my wife is due in a month. Okay, you had less time to plan. But overwhelmingly, these are not surprises. And like you said, Colin, you, you mentioned that Commanders cannot deny this, but boy, they can sure make it miserable for you to take 
or even penalize you for taking this leave. And that was my experience. I had two children prior to joining the Air Force. I had one child while I was in, and that was not a very positive experience. Like you said, they could not deny me those 10 days, but they were going to wash me out of my class at Intel school and put me in another class that would force me to graduate a couple months later, even though I had prearranged with everyone up and down the chain to avoid that. So for the birth of my third child, I started class at 6 a.m. I left at noon. My wife gave birth at 1 p.m. And by 6 p.m., I was back in class until midnight that night. Did not miss a beat and took my 10 days, you know, six, seven months in the future after we had moved. And that was a pretty traumatic event, you know, in, in my house. I was grateful to be there for the birth. But I think what I really want to talk about is we are responsible for creating the culture. I can say that I care for people all day long, but what they're going to remember is how I react when they say, hey, sir or ma'am, my wife is going to have a baby and I would like to take my secondary caregiver leave three weeks and I'd like to take it at this point, you know, in the future. How do we, how do you react to that? Do you give them grief? Do you say, oh, well, real men don't need to care for their children. You know, the unit's going to be missing you I mean, or, or whatever you say to communicate to your member that they don't need to take the leave or you'd prefer that they didn't. What culture do you create? Because on paper, yeah, you gave them the leave. But what the paper doesn't capture is that you made it miserable for the member and they had difficult conversations with family as a result that now they are alienated followers who are not willing to put in the hard work for you. And that creates a culture. We are responsible for that culture. I don't know. What are your, what's your take? Yeah. And we're having this conversation around the topic of the use of caregivers leave, but the same discussion could also be had around does someone take a deployment or not? Does someone accept the assignment or volunteer to be an exec or not? Another great example from Jenny's interview is she washed out of UPT. How do you react to that when you find out someone went to UPT and didn't complete it? Which is a whole lot more common, by the way, than I think people realize. The, the point being that there are many different circumstances where this same type of thing is at play, that you are responsible for the culture that you create in your flight, in your squadron, in your group, wherever you find yourself as an officer, especially in a position of authority and command. Yeah. And I'm grateful for Jenny that the timing worked out for her because I also read through the lines there that the culture that she was a part of when these events happened worked with her life and that of her family and the goals that they have. Because if the timing isn't working out, that's another way of saying we weren't supported in the way that we would have preferred. And yes, I could potentially be putting words in her mouth, but just having gone through a birth and my wife still reminds me about this. 
every time, you know, we have a friend who has a child and they get six weeks off or whatever. She always looks at me and is like, you were in class that evening. Yes. Yes, I was. You know, like that was our experience. And so I just, I want to be the kind of leader that creates a culture where people feel like they can come to me with questions. It reminds me of, of a great quote from Colin Powell that says, when your soldiers stop bringing you problems, you know, that that's what it reminds me of. And we create that culture and it's by the things we say, it's by the things we don't say, it's by our actions. All the little things that we do add up to that culture. We need to be aware of that. And I think too many of us aren't. Absolutely. So I'm glad that you brought it up here so that we can be more aware of it. We hope that the rest of you, our audience, gain something from this discussion. Uh, we d- definitely hope that you get something from the interview with Jenny. So many topics. Yeah. Big shout out to Jenny for taking time out of her crazy busy schedule with all the things she's got going on to sit down with us and share with you, our audience, and with you and I, Colin, her experience and background and knowledge. I sure gained a lot. Yeah, we're really happy to bring it to you today. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Commission It. Thank you for listening to Commission It, the Air Force Officer Podcast. The views and opinions of the authors expressed herein do not state or reflect those of the government and shall not be used for advertising or product endorsement purposes. Mention of any specific commercial products, process, or service by trade name, trademark, manufacturer, or otherwise does not necessarily constitute nor imply its endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by the U.S. government. The mention of companies by name is solely for the purpose of discussion and should not be implied as endorsement.